0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 74, The Big Questions. What the big questions actually are depends on who you are and where your priorities lie. Here at Cheap Astronomy... We're going to go with the questions, why are we here, and where do we go next? So firstly, let's look at why we're here, in a purely material sense. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How long did the universe take to complete the periodic table? This is really a question about nucleosynthesis, which began with the Big Bang, and continues today in stars and, on a small scale, in human-built laboratories. The periodic table of elements has grown over the lifetime of the universe. Within the first three minutes, nearly all the universe's hydrogen content and most of its helium were formed. The hydrogen coming first, but much of it fusing into helium in those early moments where the whole universe was still small and dense and very hot. Some lithium and beryllium, and maybe traces of boron and carbon, were also produced at that time. Then, not much happened until 200 million years later, when the first stars formed. Those early stars were mostly big ones, fusing hydrogen to add yet more helium to the universe, pumped out in their stellar wind, but at the same time they were also fusing new elements around their core where an outer shell of helium was compressing down on a shell of nitrogen, which was compressing down on a shell of carbon and neon, then a shell of oxygen and carbon, neon and magnesium, silicon and sulphur, and finally an iron-nickel core. Fusion would continue above and between those shells of new elements, the centre of the star becoming ever hotter and denser, until that iron-nickel core collapsed into degenerate matter, and the sudden infalling of all the surrounding material added kinetic energy to the mix, which drove a whole new level of even more energetic fusion reactions, releasing so much energy that the star blew itself to bits. For really big stars, this could mean complete annihilation, while for moderately big stars, a remnant black hole is left behind and for just averagely big stars, a neutron star is left behind. The rest of the original star's mass, including a rich mix of new elements, is blown outwards to seed the cosmos. There's a few caveats though. Nearly all the iron and nickel formed in the core of a big star is destroyed in the core collapse. So any iron and nickel those stars donate to the universe is newly formed in their supernova explosion. In fact, most of the iron and nickel in the universe today comes from exploding white dwarves, that is, type Ia supernovae. White dwarfs are formed at the end of the life of a modestly sized star like our Sun and are always less than 1.44 solar masses, but if it later takes on more mass, usually from a binary companion and it exceeds 1.44 solar masses, the Chandrasekhar limit, then kablooey. White dwarfs are mostly carbon and oxygen, but that extra mass addition drives lots of sudden new fusion, which blows the stars to bits, and so seeds the cosmos with yet more elements. But the main contributor to the universe's really heavy elements, including gold and uranium, is something else again. A neutron star, colliding with either another neutron star or a black hole, creates a kilonova, which is not as bright as a supernova, but is still a thousand times brighter than a nova. That collision creates lots of new fusion events, creating lots of new energy that blows the neutron stars to bits, and since they are the densest visible objects in the universe, their post-collision fusion products include the heaviest elements in the universe, at least the naturally occurring ones that persist for any reasonable length of time. So, in a nutshell, most of the elements in the periodic table are formed in stellar explosions. Nonetheless, a lot of elements, including quite heavy elements, form inside small stars like the Sun, and are later shrugged off into the cosmos when that star goes red giant towards the end of its billions of years' long life. For example, small stars are where most of the universe's lead comes from, even though some lead comes from stellar explosions too. But anyway, how long did the universe take to complete the periodic table? The first stars appeared 200 million years after the Big Bang. Really big stars can form and explode in less than a million years, but modestly large ones, which are likely to leave a neutron star behind, have lifetimes more like 10 million years. We can only guess at how long it might take for two neutron stars in a binary system to collide as their orbits decay, but maybe, by the end of the universe's first half billion years, the first uranium atom was formed in a neutron star collision along with a lot of other heavy elements. At that point probably all the elements we have today came into being. But their current proportional abundances have also been influenced by large populations of smaller stars evolving through their billion-year-long lifetimes, for example, about 10 billion years in the case of the Sun, which is a long time for a universe only 13.8 billion years old. This is the middle bit. So yes, we are stardust, and apparently we're golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. But now on to the next big question, which is, where do we go next? Which may not turn out to be as far as we want, but we just might find it's as far as we need. Dear Cheap Astronomy, is interstellar travel really out of the question? Our current understanding of physics suggests that travelling to the nearest star within a human lifetime is pretty much out of the question. Regardless of what type of engine you use, even approaching, let alone passing the speed of light, puts you at risk of destroying your spacecraft through collisions with just specks of cosmic dust. You could design some kind of deflector device to clear the way ahead of you but anything using electromagnetic principles can only deflect charged particles so you'd still need impact shielding to deflect any neutrally charged particles so you could try flying with some kind of multi-layered shield positioned in front of you which has huge shock absorbers built into it but even with your shock absorbing shield working at sublight speed you'll still have a problem with drag Every time you deflect a particle out of your path, either electromagnetically or with an impact shield, that deflection will decelerate you slightly, an effect that becomes more significant the faster you go. One traditional interstellar spacecraft design, the bussard ramjet, is a good illustration of the drag problem. The ramjet is a spacecraft with a massive scoop in front, the scoop having a diameter that's measured in kilometres. Its role being to scoop up hydrogen ions as it goes forward, collecting and concentrating them into a drive chamber where they are accelerated up to high speed and then shot out the back. So the spacecraft gains propulsion without having to carry its own propellant. Trouble is, every particle scooped up represents a tiny impact and a tiny deceleration. It's been calculated that once you get to around 12% of light speed, the benefit gained by accelerating the particles out the back is fully countered by the decelerating drag of the scoop up the front. So you reach a terminal velocity and just can't go faster. 12% of light speed is still pretty fast, so assuming you can build some sort of hydrogen collection fusion accelerating engine, This is definitely a workable interstellar spacecraft, although you won't make it to other stars within one human lifetime. Of course, a more streamlined spacecraft with an internal propulsion drive just needs deflectors and impact shielding, although one isolated impact with a dust grain at 0.99% of the speed of light is still going to be a heck of a jolt remembering that kinetic energy equals half mv-squared. So it's not so much the mass of the object, but the speed that you hit it at that matters. Anyway, apart from the bussard ramjet, other interstellar drive concepts each have their pros and cons. Firstly, warp drive? Meh, probably impossible. The Alcubierre drive warp bubble idea is interesting but way beyond being technically feasible from our current understanding of physics. The various reactionless drive concepts, the EM drive and all that, just plain don't work. You can't achieve a sustained momentum gain by just moving matter or microwaves around in your spacecraft. And no amount of quantum or relativistic hand-waving is going to help. It's just bad physics you either need to push something out the back of your spacecraft, or be pushed forward by something. So you either need a propulsion system, essentially a rocket, or you can be pushed forward by starlight, or by laser light, or you could drop nuclear bombs out the back, so as to get pushed forward by their blasts. But anyway, beyond all the technology challenges, if you can't get anywhere much within your lifetime, what exactly is the point? Sure, you could start a multi-generational crew so that your distant progeny go places, but are you sure your kids or your grandkids will thank you for that? And even if those individuals do arrive somewhere long after your death, why does it really matter to you? So, why not just send robots? Who can report back to your kids and your grandkids as they live out their lives comfortably back here on Earth? Robots don't have all the problems involved with life support, and nor will they end up hating you for what you did to them. Here at Cheap Astronomy, the answer to most of life's problems is robots. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Rather than spending your life sitting in a tin can, why not send tin people? That is, robots. As well as save on life support you save on insurance and legal fees, and if it all goes pear-shaped, you just send out another mission. And if the robots happen to stumble across Earth 2.0, we can get them to start building the colony infrastructure so it's all ready for us when we arrive, or perhaps when our frozen eggs and sperm arrive, along with a range of other earthly genomes in storage, so the robots can create a familiar ecosystem for us. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you have your own plan for taking over the universe, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll go ha for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.